on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, tag team interview with both the composer and the star of a new production of the opera Soldier Songs. We go inside the huddle with David T. Little and baritone Jonathan McCullough. Soldier Songs is streaming now on the Opera Philadelphia channel, but you'll want to stay right here on the Dallas Opera Network for at least the next hour. And then, did you have a nice inauguration? Did you enjoy the singing? In Chalk Talk, the OBS team chimes in about which music they'd like to have whenever one of us runs for president and safely gets past that last hurdle of a valid Electoral College certification. Viewer alert, by the way, you'll only find this Chalk Talk segment on the podcast version of our show. That's available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio. Plus, two-minute drill, middleclassartist.com? More like middleclassartist.bomb. Zach Finkelstein investigates a predatory online voice competition. This is one of the weirdest stories I've ever come across. Who better than the greatest of all time, Zach Finkelstein, to break it? Ashley, uh, tell us about the Sarah Thomas. Tell us about what? I didn't hear your last... Tell us about Sarah Thomas. Oh, yes. I, I heard Sarah Times, and I was like, who's that? No, I don't know who that is, but I know who <laughs> Sarah please. Thomas is. Sarah, yeah. I was like, am I, I going to... Ashley was uh, not prepared. Yeah, I was prepared, but I was prepared for a different name. We're all here, guys. Welcome. <laughs> Happy Monday. We're doing it. By the time you hear this, it'll be Wednesday. We're glad you're here. Let's talk about Sarah Thomas. Sarah okay. Thomas is the first female referee to do pretty much everything. She... First uh, female referee to ref a college bowl, a football game. First one to officiate a bowl game. First one to officiate in a Big Ten stadium. And on Super Bowl Sunday, February 7th, which is also my birthday, uh, she will become the first uh, female to referee in a Super Bowl. And she may wow. be the first to do all those things, but she's going to make sure she's not the last. She ain't going to be the last. That How is, is she going to make sure? I would have is she gonna like have children who become referees too? I don't know. It's like, gonna be a gonna... dynasty of uh, of women <laughs> referees because she's gonna do such a great job that everyone's okay. just gonna be clamoring. Okay. So Representation other... matters. That was <laughs> yeah. the good call. Not that we're jumping to the end of our show. That was your good call, Ashley. Your bad call was presumably your the nightmare that Tom Brady would be in the Super Bowl came true, <laughs> and he's gonna be in the Super Bowl. I'm guys, guys. I need you to know how devastating yesterday's game was for me. I wanted to see Tom Brady get his ass handed to him by Aaron Rodgers so badly. We We were in a playoff game in the snow at Lambeau and you got a whole bunch of Floridians coming north. I was like, guys, this is going to be great. It's going to be great. And then it just piece by piece, it started to crumble. And uh, so yeah, Tom Brady's in the Super Bowl, whatever. I suppose the only silver lining on that is uh, Tobias Wright, old co-host and colleague and friend. He's dead to us. Nemesis. Enemy of the show. (laughs) But very, very happy right now that the Kansas City Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. They've had their day in the sun. And you know who really hasn't? The Buffalo Bills. I was pulling for them. We were all rooting for the Buffalo Bills, Tiffany. We 
were. Uh, it was it was actually a really good game. Uh, they they did have a couple of things. Again, I watched all six hours of NFL playoff games yesterday. Uh, but yeah, no, especially in the first half. The first half was it was a fight. It was uh, it it looked like they might be able to pull it off. But the fact that they were even that far was, I mean, good on you, Bills. Do we have an equivalent? Buffalo William was not with them that day. Do we have a Tom Brady equivalent in opera? Don't say Domingo. Someone who is deeply undeserving of all of the accolades, but is upsettingly handsome. I think we could probably find some. (laughs) I think that's me, Weston. I'm the Tom Brady. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So you all know that James Dara is the most sought after director in opera right now because of the pandemic. And we were so fortunate to be able to talk to David T. Little and the star of James Dara's production of Soldier Songs, Jonathan McCullough. Thanks, you know, for having us on. Uh, it was great to be back on the show. Yes, my um, favorite. Uh, <laughs> you know, Soldier Songs is interesting because it was the first opera that I composed and I, I only realized that I had written an opera after Beth Morrison told me, oh, well, you know, Soldier Songs is an, is an opera, <laughs> yeah, right? It is. Surprise. Um, yeah, I actually didn't know. And, and I'm really thankful, actually, that I didn't know because I think I would have been, you know, crushed by the weight of the form. Mm. Um, saying that I was writing a song cycle that would be staged allowed me a lot of flexibility when I was writing it um, and allowed me to sort of step out from the, the sort of weight of, of the, the lineage. I wasn't thinking about Verity, you know, Wagner, whatever. I was just like, I'm writing this piece and it's going to be staged and that's exciting. Um, and, and also writing it as songs allowed me flexibility in the process where I, I knew that form you know, how a piece moves in time was really important to whether it worked dramatically or not. And by allowing myself to have discrete sections, it gave me a little bit of a safety valve where I can say, oh, that doesn't really work. I can switch those if I, you know, I could reorder things if I needed to. Mm-hmm. And I think there were like one or two things that, that, you know, I did maybe reverse to help or reorder to help the sort of dramatic arc work better. I don't remember exactly. I mean, this is 15 plus years ago now. Um, but I felt like that was a really in hindsight, it was a really good decision early on because it, it just made it less, it made it less, kind of less stressful. I mean, it was still stressful, but it, it, you know, I I wasn't always afraid that I was going to mess it up by like putting, making this decision or that I was going to have to go in and do like extensive revisions because it was built in blocks, you know? Um, So yeah. And, and basing it on interviews, well, we can talk more about the interviews, but I think structurally it starts as a song cycle and then kind of kind of disintegrates. And the end of the piece is this, you know, the last song is this like 12 minute meditation where the singer actually sings very little. Um, and so it's like a, a, a song cycle that undoes itself or something. And I imagine that's a, a bit of a challenge to sort of not just sing, but also direct. And Jonathan, you did both. <laughs> for this production uh and uh, i i watched the entire thing i was super impressed with the the production value the uh um just the performance how did you approach the the sort of strangely segmented nature when you were both directing and acting to make it a cohesive whole yeah th- thanks um so i, <laughs> I was like, yeah, um so yeah it is when i first looked at it i was like okay it's 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 kind of structured into these three segments, right? Youth, warrior, and elder. 
but uh, I kind of thought, you know, like there's a through line here, obviously, because that's the way that David wrote it. And I kind of said like, well, what if it's all kind of from the point of view of the elder? And we take the elder and we go back because there is this kind of cyclical form in the whole piece where it starts with these bass drums and it ends with these bass drums. Uh, it starts with the interviews and it ends with the interviews. Mm. So I kind of saw it as, well, if he's the elder the entire time, we can kind of look through that lens from the beginning. And if we do that and we start at the elder and then he kind of lives his life like flashing before his eyes, then I kind of went into that and said, all right, well, I can incorporate these symptoms of PTSD that were kind of very important as to why I chose to do the project in the first place. Right. Um, to kind of to bring light and awareness to what many veterans do go through that is kind of vastly unknown by the general public who doesn't go through that because it's kind of a, it's like, if, if you know, you know, if you've been there, like the piece starts out with, I never talk about this with anybody. And, mm. and it's really a thing where a lot of veterans won't talk about the real, the real stuff unless it's with somebody who's been there. Um, and then that can also kind of lead to this downward spiral of bottling up feelings, which can lead to other things. So um, yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to do when I looked at the structure and kind of not reworked it, but looked at it from a, slightly different angle of taking the elder and going all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I want to go back to David for a second, because you mentioned, you know, sort of the experiences and the, and the, the stories of the, of the soldiers. I want to talk a little bit about the origin of the text, which comes from these interviews. So yeah. can you just tell us a little bit about the interviews and how you gathered them? Uh, sure. Well, so the piece began with um, a sort of reconnection with an old friend of mine named Justin Bennett, who we were both, you know, giving a talk at like a career day at my high school. This is hmm. like 2004, I think, 2005, maybe. And, you know, I was there to talk about being a composer and he was there talking about being a field medic in Iraq. And I was like, okay, we have had very different experiences since you know, <laughs> I'd graduation. Say so. <laughs> and, and I realized the degree to which um, I had a lot of people in my life, both people I had gone to high school with, because, you know, I graduated high school in 97. And so, you know, 9-11 happened. I think a lot of people enlisted after a lot of people had already enlisted. And, um, and I felt that I needed to investigate that, uh, you know, uh, like my, my connection through these people to, to the military. And looking deeper, I discovered I, you know, so many of my family members had been in the military in, in Second World War and in Vietnam. And, um, and so I just reached out to people who I knew and who were available you know, some people who were deployed at the time I couldn't reach. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there are a lot of other friends from high school who, you know, if I had written it at a slightly, slightly different time, I could have brought into this process, but they, they were still overseas. Um, and I just sat down and I said, you know, would you just talk to me about your experience and try to keep it kind of informal, you know, I maybe had a couple prepared questions, um, pretty vague, like, you know, what did it feel like to arrive at this place you were going, what was basic training like? And through the interviews, um, certain themes emerged, one of which being, I never talk about this in a, with anyone. This is the first time I've talked about this, um, you know, since I got home kind of things. And, and the themes of the piece sort of emerged from these conversations. And initially they were just meant to be research. Uh, they weren't originally going to be in the piece itself. And at a certain mm. point I realized, well, this, this is not my story to tell. I haven't experienced this. 
I haven't right. experienced these things that these, these men and women have experienced. And so that's when I made the decision to say, okay, I'm going to present, you know, the work is going to be framed by these, by their words. Uh, and that's where the interviews came into the piece. So we're going to, this question is going to be double prong. It's going to be for both of you, but I'll begin with you, David. Um, there is so much tension that is created at the onset of this opera sonically. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I felt like I didn't get my breath until uh, I don't know the name of the aria, but it's in the second part uh, where there's like a, a really bad barbecue scene. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and Jonathan is singing like probably the most lyrical part of the opera. It feels like classic baritone aria moment. Um, but leading up to that, there's just so much, I mean, violence essentially, but the noise is just really upsetting. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about orchestration and about um, some decisions you made. Uh, what are some of the devices you're using? So give us a little insight into how you came up with this sonic language. What are you borrowing from film scores? I don't know, mm. experimental music. I don't know what, but uh, it's, not, uh, it's not easy to, be to begin with. You know, It does definitely right. make your heart race. Like, like I'm watching Dunkirk or something like that. You know. <laughs> Right. Well, so Soldier Songs happened at an interesting time for me as a composer in terms of my own development. And I had up to this point been very um, closed off to my own influences. And I said, well, classical music is this. It has, a, there are specific ways that it is done and that's how we do it. And, it, and right before right. I wrote this, I said, that's stupid. Uh, and I'm not gonna do that anymore. And I'm going to write a piece and I'm going to, <laughs> if I feel that a certain moment needs to reference heavy metal or whatever, I'm going to just do it. And I figured at that point, I was like, Hey, I was in my twenties. And so I feel like I'm young enough. If this is a disaster, I just pretend it didn't happen and move on and do something else. But it really <laughs> unlocked uh, what became kind of my language in a way, because I grew up with a very eclectic listening um, practice you know and finally that was all coming together in in my work so that's one thing just about this the styles i think the orchestration is connected to that because um when you're referencing certain styles you're referencing mediated sound and recorded sound and you know if you're referencing heavy metal right. you need distortion Right. So, okay, well now we have to just have distortion on the strings. Now we have to amplify the strings. Okay. Everything's got to be amplified. Okay. We want some really low synth. We want some like square wave synth in one, one part. Okay. Well, we, so now we have a synthesizer, you know, and so it kind of built uh, on itself as I was uh, writing it. And the result was a piece for uh, seven players. Originally there was no drum set. Actually the very beginning was just six players. And then I oh, had really? the drum set later. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, you're a drummer yourself. So that I, I'm yeah. kind of surprised by that. <laughs> when I add, well, so I wrote it for Pittsburgh new music ensemble and they were right. set with a baritone. Gotcha. Once I started working with Beth Morrison, we talked about it and we said, you know, and I had my ensemble new speak was up and running at that point. And so new speak was going to play it and has continued to play it for the Beth Morrison projects productions. And I said, well, you know, I have, I'm a, I'm a drummer. I'll just play a drum set. So I actually premiered the drum set part. Oh, wow. <laughs> at the premiere of the Yuval Sharon production in, in um, New Haven. And then I realized like, I can't be in the band and have an opera happening. Like it's too much. I can't, I have no <laughs> idea what's happening. It's really stressful. And so 
I, then I was like, okay, that was fun. Now we're going to have someone else come in and play drums yes. I'll be at the house, like looking at balance and things like that. Um, but what, you know, the results of, of this expansion was that we ended up with a piece for seven players that sounds much mm. bigger than seven players. Yeah. And, and I like that a lot. And, and that creeps up also in dog days. You see a similar kind of, of, of thing yes. happening. And so that become, became something I was really interested in as well. Well, one of the things that Oliver and I both noticed that we both thought was interesting uh, beyond the heavy metal influences was also like the references to a lot of like um, sort of traditional military music, sort of the snare drum mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, and the flute was something that we both picked up on. And there's a I, I can't remember. There's a couple Worst of moments flute ever. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting because uh, uh, there's one part I can't remember where it is. I think it's in like the first third of the opera or so, maybe near the end of the first third. Um, where there's like this ascending repeated major scale. Uh, it's not the full scale, but I remember being so unsettled by that. Uh, and, and, uh, and just the, the way of that juxtaposition of that sort of instrument that in opera we tend to associate with happy moments or, mm -hmm. or more playful moments coming up against this hardcore sort of metal band sound right. and kind of being the more disturbing was just so right. interesting to me. And I think Oliver as well. Um, when you uh, when you were doing the orchestration, obviously I'm sure that came to mind, but uh, I actually was wondering, did you do any uh, modifications to the orchestration for this production at all? Well, just one thing real quickly about the- Oh the yeah, please the, do. The military <laughs> thing. So and one the of the things- flute. And the evil flute. So one of the things that actually I don't, I haven't talked about too much um, traditionally, but one of my musical experiences that was really, really um, influential on my work as a composer was that I played for probably 10 or 12 years in a fife and drum corps oh, in really? New Jersey. So I had this weird knowledge of like military, like colonial era and civil war era military music. <laughs> and the particular way I was actually driving somewhere listening to fife and drum music with my, uh, with my wife before we were married. And which I, I have to say like that she would drive somewhere and listen to fife and drum music with me was like a testament to how good she is. <laughs> you know, not many people would, yeah, not many people would do that. Um, and she pointed out, she's like, the, this style of drumming is like, this is exactly how you think about rhythm. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. It's totally true. Yeah. So there's so much actually of fife and drum music in the DNA of this piece, even though it's not necessarily, I'm not quoting fife and drum songs. Right. <laughs> um, and so the flute certainly in piccolo is, is, is part of that. Um, and then the, there's the big alto flute solo, of course, with, is that right. old friends, right, Jonathan, old friends with large weapons, yeah. um, which is just a really hard alto flute part. <laughs> it's really <laughs> difficult. And, and, and I'm so thankful for the many, many amazing flutists who have practiced a lot to be able to do it because <laughs> they, it's always, you know, really, I think a really beautiful moment, but it's very difficult. Um, moving on a little bit to the uh, singing aspect of the orchestration. I mean, uh, one of the most striking things, I think, when you first hear soldier songs is sort of the opening. Uh, well, not not the opening after sort of after the introduction where uh, you, Jonathan, go into this hard falsetto right out of the gate. <laughs> and from that moment on, you don't get any breaks. You're jumping styles. You're almost uh, like a rock singer. You, you're, you screech, you growl. You, uh, um, what, what are, can you even like count the number of singing styles you had to do for this? Uh, I counted at least four as the singer. I, I counted <laughs> yeah, yeah. At, least, at least four. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, 
that that's a question. I mean, you're, you're singing off your breath. You're doing all these extended vocal techniques. You know, you're, you're navigating in and out of what our music teachers might consider healthy tone production. Um, so I talk to me about that a little bit and what the experience is like. And then I have a follow up question. Yeah. So I kind of think of it in, in, it's all based on, you know, classic, classical bel canto technique. Right. And then I kind of, just modifying each thing for whatever it's called for. So like, I actually think more so like voice, voiceover acting for the first one. And then actually like mm. a little bit of yodel almost switching between the two <laughs> extras because there is, I forgot which measure number it is, but there's one part where it goes from the child voice to regular baritone voice within, right. I mean like a 16th note and it just switches. So it's almost like doing a yodel, but without the, without the break <laughs> part, you know? Yeah. So um, I kind of thought of that as, you know, cause it's not, uh, it's not your typical falsetto like Carmina. It's a different kind of right. falsetto. Um, it's a little more brash and like harsh. Um, so I kind of thought that, and then there's like the Limp Biscuit kind of stuff where when we were rehearsing, <laughs> David was like, listen to this Limp Biscuit live from like 1991. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's, that's not one you hear referenced a lot. Fred Durst right. of artistic inspiration. Yeah. Who would have thought? I don't think yeah, it was right? necessarily inspired by, I want to make that clear. Sure, sure. It's not inspired <laughs> yeah, by, okay. but in, in the coaching, I was like, what's the, you know, what is this character? And I was like, this is like pissed off, you know, this is pissed off Fred Durst, you know? So, yeah. yeah. And then, and then, you know, for certain movements like uh, kind of the days with the birthday cake scene and, and two Marines has real bel canto stuff where you have these chords and then like a long, uh, smooth phrase. And then, uh, you know, on top of that, there's kind of like elements of musical theater in that it's a theater piece that is musical, not necessarily like, ha ha or anything. Yeah. Right. There were but jazz I, hands in the first draft. Yeah, we're not. Had to pull those guys down. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I, I guess that's that's kind of the uh, the vocal style encyclopedia well, and, there, the catalog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and it that really was kind of, know which one is today. <laughs> well, that was part of my sort of tiny follow up to that is that uh, you know could you draw a relationship between let's say toxic masculinity of the character and some of those ugly physically ugly sometimes sounds that you were asked to portray i mean because because we got it but i didn't know if that was part of <laughs> something that was part of your process yeah so i mean like there i mean so it's it's interesting because it's definitely toxic and masculine because like i mean this video game scene is all about yeah this. That boom, bang, dead. Yeah. Just it, 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 well, and the it violence. Hurts. And the That's violence. The violence kind of lives in the first part. Yeah. Right. And but I think it's a little different than like Howard in Dog Days because that's a, a different right. kind of toxic masculinity where it's like I am the alpha of the household and anything that anyone else has to say doesn't matter. Right. It's not quite that, but it's it definitely you know David and I had talked about this and how it's it's more in the realm of what it means to be a man as society has right. called it, which, which just kind of goes hand in, I don't agree with this, but hand in hand with this, like that means you are, uh, or it, it goes hand in hand with violence. Right. And basically like, you know, kill them all, not a man, kill them all, not a man. Right. It's, uh, if you can't kill, then you're not a man and that kind of stuff. So that's uh, how I think that, 
Okay. Well, and also the idea of dehumanizing an enemy and making them not a man, but a insert epithet makes them able, makes you right. able to kill them. Right. So there, right. there's like sort of double meaning of that. Yeah. That's David, true. you seem to uh, have, well, in the two works that we know of that we've seen now, uh, toxic masculinity and violence is like your brand. <laughs> even in even in like some of the like instrumental music, like 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 in agency and uh, and yeah, pieces yeah. like this, that like there's this sort of core of violence and really sort of like it it, it, it reminds me of Wozzeck in a way, where you where you have like you know the sort of the reveling in it musically, but mm. at the same time you don't break away when the horror dawns in, you know. And so I was wondering there, what, what is, is it about it. Yeah, what is it about it that that keeps you bringing coming back to this sort of theme? You know, I it's an interesting question, and and Vatsek, you know, was Vatsek was the piece, and Peter Grimes were the two pieces for me that mm. that made me think, oh, I could I could live in that world of opera. You know, up to that point, I was like, <laughs> twins, this is me, same. <laughs> I was like, like Weston, yeah, yeah. But you know, up to that, I was like, oh, this Mozart's nice, but I don't know. And then I was like, oh, Vatsek, oh, Grimes, you know. So, and I think for me, it's connected a little bit with my interest in in political art. Um, which I feel like lately I do, it, my work is less explicitly political than I think it was, you know, maybe a decade ago. And, I, and I'm yeah. sort of moving into sort of other areas. But um, this idea that there are, you know, horrors in the world, there are awful things in the world. And in, in we have a choice to either look at them and learn from them or pretend they're not there, which does nothing, but let them continue to happen, you know. Yeah. And, you know, a piece like Haunt of Last Nightfall, you know, is, you know, about a horrific massacre uh, that the United States government was, you know, behind, involved in, yes. supported, you know, um, and it felt important to me just personally, almost as, a, as, a, as, a, as an expression of my own experience of learning about it to say, you know, to acknowledge that it had happened, to say this, you know, this happened in my lifetime. And I didn't know about it, but to what degree does that matter? Am I still complicit? How am I still complicit? Or, you know, and to really just ask those sort of questions. So I think that question of complicity perhaps is at the core of, of a lot of these, these questions that I ask through a lot of my works and the question of, um, you know, just the, the sort of belief that we have to stare these difficult things directly in their, in their face um, and, and engage with them and address them. Otherwise, we're, it's just this endless loop. And I think the idea that soldier songs itself is a loop, um, right. you know, pieces that 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 form cycles. That's a thing that a couple of pieces of mine do. Um, that idea of trying to break a loop uh, is important to me because I think society hasn't always been the best at doing that. You know, I think for me with this, the question of masculinity, um, I have to give a lot of credit to Utah Phillips, who was, um, I don't know if you guys know him, but he's um, died in 2008. He was a sort of wobbly folk singer um, mm -hmm. who I got to know through his work with Ani DeFranco. Um, and, you know, he had very particular takes on um, what he called the blueprint for self-destruction that you were handed as a man in American society. Mm -hmm. And that, for, you know, he, he felt that his, his father had lied to him about being a man. His grandfather had lied to him about being a man that he had been sold this bill of, of goods that was just wrong. And for him, that included being uh, in the army. He was in the army, he was in Korea and um, actually went AWOL at one point. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, kind of hid out for a while, had this very sort of dramatic experience. Um, and I got to know him a little bit, you know, toward the end of his life. And, and I know a lot of his stories really intimately. And so this question of, I think the in a way this piece maybe started uh, subconsciously from this story that, you know, this is something that, that society teaches you. Um, and, and, you know, with soldier songs, the question is like, well, what do, how do we as a culture make our soldiers and what does war do to those same people, those soldiers who fight it? Um, and, you know, what is there to be learned from that? How can we make the world better by investigating it? Um, how can we help those who have been, you know, who are suffering with PTSD? And what are the bigger implications of it, you know, for, um, for the next generation who, you know, has an opportunity to kind of, potentially reject that same um, that same story that that mm -hmm. has been taught generation after generation about what it means to be a man and that's that's associated with violence or, or whatever um, so I you know I just I think Utah Phillips if anybody doesn't know him I really recommend checking him out um, his an album called the past didn't go anywhere with Ani DeFranco which I think is really great and the story of him leaving Korea and his sort of epiphany uh, in Korea is all on there and um, yeah, so I think, you know, thinking about this question, I think that's where it started for me, which would have been probably in, you know, I think in college, I heard that album for the first time. I mean, it, it for me as a person of color and not a woman, though I do advocate for women all the time, um, I feel like it's rare to find a straight white guy, a cis white guy like you, who's like thinking about these things and reckoning with them and putting them, you know, in an art form that, uh, I mean, look at this Jonathan guy, like he's such a hunk, you know, he's such a, he's such a bro, you know, <laughs> and, and making him go through all that stuff uh, in this show. I mean, you really put yourself out there and uh, it's very vulnerable and um, it's touching that you allow yourself or anybody who sings this role, I imagine has to do that in front Absolutely. of an audience and even now in front of a camera for however many thousands of people will see this, you know? Well, and when you get to two Marines, the question of like, you know, real vulnerability of being a father and father losing a child, um, you know, so there is some, there is deep emotion in there. And, and I think when I did the interviews with people, I saw, I saw some of this, inter the, the emotional vulnerability creeping through, you know, there are a couple things that people said where, you know, like my one uncle tells a story about, you know, he was in Sears and was talking to a, a woman who was at the like the checkout counter who was Vietnamese and he says, this is the first time he ever talked to a Vietnamese person about the war. Uh, and they had this long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, she thanked him. You know, this was the first time that anyone had thanked me for what I did. And, you know, this is after him saying like the stories where he thought he was going to not make it home and these really harrowing moments. And, you know, for no one to have even acknowledged the difficulty of that was, was very difficult for him still, you know? And so this idea that there's this artifice that, that one needs to build up around that, around that vulnerability for one's own protection or whatever, I think is, is part of the, the sort of big picture. And I think that's, again, the stuff that Utah, um, Utah sort of advocated that this idea that, you know, as, a, as I think he would say, like you were born a white man in mid 20th century America, you were born armed to the teeth with the weapons of privilege and you have to go into the world unarmed. 
that's your task is to unarm yourself, you know? Um, so I, you know, Utah, I was hoping that I would have been able to interview him for this piece for Soldier Songs and it didn't work out um, for a number of reasons, but I did, uh, there's a related piece called And the Sky Was Still There, um, which is a, a sort of outtake from one of the veterans I interviewed, Amber Ferenc, uh, about her experience of being thrown out of the army under the don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm -hmm. And I did, I was able to quote Utah, use a sample of an interview um, that he did with Democracy Now! And he says, well, yeah, I joined the army, but um, something, sometimes you learn things the hard way. Something like that. I kept forgetting it now, but, um, but that, yeah, I guess I joined the army. Sometimes you learn things, sometimes you learn things the hard way, but that's how you know you'll never forget it. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. Um, Jonathan's next question goes to you. Um, I want to talk about sort of the on-camera performance uh, that you gave. Uh, the theme of isolation uh, and the, the zeitgeist around it. To, to what extent was the zeitgeist of isolation something that you were thinking about during this performance? Yeah, I mean, something that I wanted to show was just how alone this guy was. There's one shot where we pan up and you see that there's really nothing around. And there are a couple of kind of shots that show that. So, I mean, it was... Not, but, but for one second, there's a scene in Big Bill uh, and Kill and Big Bill and Kill Bill uh, when <laughs> what movie is that? when Daryl Hannah uh, I forget the name of her character when the one with the eye patch mm. goes to kill the guy with the snake, and he lives like in a trailer, uh, like in the middle of the yeah, desert. Yeah, yeah. Do you, have you, you seen Kill, kill Bill? Big Bill? I haven't yeah. seen Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so when this movie first, I was like, oh my god, it's it's Kill Bill. You know? <laughs> That's cool. All right, sorry about that. Go on. Uh, <laughs> Big but yeah, I didn't want, you know, part of this also plays into this, uh, these neuroses of um, being watched or like, uh, you know, there's one scene where I, I, I we, we put up newspaper on the window and there's like looking at the, uh, at the light, like, why is that flickering or who's outside? Like two kids went by, why are they going there again? Two o'clock. And it goes into this idea of the neuroses that can go along with um, certain aspects of mental illness. And I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of bring those to light and again, be like, look, these are things that uh, that happen to people. And it's again, going along with that theme of if, if, if you don't know, you kind of can look at somebody and, you know, a lot of times people end up getting marginalized by society. And I kind of wanted to bring to light, like David just said, if you, if you don't know, you can't change it. So uh, in that aspect of this, subject of isolation I wanted to kind of go along with that plus it goes so much with what everybody's dealing with right now and when, when we were in lockdown right. and everybody's alone it's something that everybody can kind of relate to of like I go through this this routine of every day I, I get up I brush my teeth I take a shower maybe I eat I you and know, nobody eat. ever yeah. hugs you ever in the whole ever. opera and you don't so have sad. Any, any human touch and there's no right. there's mm -hmm. no uh, even when when someone does come to the door it's it's not answered and the only thing that that other person in the show is uh is just coming to say some really terrible news so it's not like oh great a person it's like oh right. a person um and it so that's kind of what I wanted to portraying that well jonathan well, i feel like the thing you're sort of getting at is is empathy right that yeah. you want to sort of create a situation where people can feel empathy for others and and i feel like the piece itself it's you know it's been 
very often it's used to reach out to veteran communities. Um, and there have been a lot of amazing conversations with with veterans and, you know, post-show discussions and things and, and special, you know, private viewings for veterans. But I think also um, it's really important for families of veterans and friends of veterans who maybe would haven't ever had these conversations to be able to see the piece and, and get some, the beginning of a kind of understanding of what the experience was. Yeah. Even if those discussions never happened with that, that person, this sense, this sense of like, oh, wow, this, this is, there's some, some heavy stuff could have happened. And I think it helps you as, a, as an individual, as a citizen to be somewhat gentler. Yeah, and I think like what, what you were saying earlier of how David uses the orchestration to kind of not shy away from these intense moments. Oh, it's triggering. Uh, yeah, and, and it, it purposely doesn't. I wanted to mirror that visually as well to put people in the shoes of the character as much as possible so they could actually feel what he was feeling, which is why I kind of do some of these quick cut cutbacks to say like, oh, this is what he's seeing. So the audience can get that point of view. So like there's one transition where He's in the, his home, which becomes a, a tank. And then all of a sudden he's outside. The music changes from da, 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 to this. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to create almost if you're watching it in movie theater, that you're in this really dark atmosphere of just like, and then all of a sudden that's quickly juxtaposed by this really bright on a white background. So that if you're watching in the movie theater, you are just as shocked and kind of like blinded by this bright light as he is in the film going like, how did I get here? How am I in these clothes? Did I do this again? Oh my God, mm -hmm. I, need to, I need to stop doing this. Why is this happening? Yeah. But we've been talking a lot these past couple of months about, um, you know, opera moving to different platforms because of the pandemic. And uh, I think people can see even from the trailer uh, what, how different this really will be like to production values and the, the, you know, the thought and skill that has been put into this. I'm going to give both of you a chance to big up James Dara as we say goodbye to you. Do you want to say anything about working with him and uh, having him realize your vision and what maybe surprised you and uh, maybe some of the things he asked you to do, Jonathan, that were like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try that. That's going to be embarrassing. Yeah, James, <laughs> James was amazing to have one sec because I, I had never A, directed, B, directed a movie and he's done both. And I've been a big admirers, admirer of his since... Uh, I knew of his work because I, I covered Breaking the Waves when he did, so we met then. Um, but yeah, so basically I came to him with this, or we came to him this with this idea and said, this is what my plan is and this is like the staging, but this is all written in a score, you know? And, and he's like, you know, you can't give a score to a DP and, a, and the grip team and, and the lighting guys and all of them. <laughs> They're gonna be like, what is this? <laughs> so he was like, this needs to be a screenplay. So uh, he, he took this, all of my kind of staging plans and went, okay, now it's in a screenplay form so that the, the DP could tell his team, okay, page six of the script, which is really page 32 of the score on measure blah, 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 <laughs> is when the, light, the lights go into party mode here. And that they're like, oh, okay, got it. <laughs> in addition to that, you know, like there's this, this uh, video village kind of thing where all these monitors are and James would uh, kind of be my eyes and would talk to me through this earpiece that was playing the orchestra as well and say, oh, you know, you got to move a little to the, to the right because <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> like, okay. He's like, now you need to do a little bit of, uh, it's, it's coming across, you're doing a little too much like pointing your body towards the camera. Things that I 
wouldn't know unless I like had to like go back and see it every time. But, you know, we only had so many hours per day. And, uh, and how long did it take to film the entire thing? We had 10 hours a day, which sounds like a lot, but like, if you look at that tanks tank scene, right. Shooting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> each, uh, each scene has whatever, how many angles you see in that scene was a whole new setup. And it takes like an hour and a half between each setup sometimes. Um, I think we had seven sessions for the recording, for the audio, for the orchestra. Oh like a, morning, yeah. a morning session and an uh, evening yeah. session would be two sessions. And then to film the movie, we had 10 days over a 14 day period, 10 hours per day. Mm. Um, and then we've been <laughs> in post-production until 15 minutes ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah. Um, but just but, to say, you know, if I can just interrupt for one second, Jonathan, I think, you know, what's really exciting about what we're seeing with, uh, with what Opera Philadelphia is doing, and I think this moment is that, you know, film has always been central to the way I thought about opera. And I've always, I've had to very often say, well, uh, this is the moment I want, but we can't do that on stage. So what's the stage version of that, you know? And I think now we have the the ability to to sort of embrace that. And I think so many of my collaborators, I know James is like that, Jonathan, um, you know, Royce Fabric, certainly, you know, one of my main collaborators, we all came up with with film. And so I think there's a really interesting moment if we can embrace this, this, this approach and this new exploration of cinema and opera, I think some amazing things are going to uh, come out of it. And I think, you know, what Jonathan and James did with Soldier Songs is the tremendous start i think i'm thrilled with it and really appreciate I'm very thankful jonathan for you know that you had this idea which is a great idea in its hug. in its non-film version yeah hug time <laughs> thanks for rolling yeah. with it <laughs> yeah well, totally. John, jonathan and david thank you so much for coming on to opera box score we're going to share the trailer as long as we can get away with it and we're going to put in some beautiful <laughs> footage crossed. Um, and yeah, congratulations. It's, uh, it's an incredible project. It's very, it's very moving and it's a very beautiful thing to look at. Actually, it's not beautiful to look at, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Powerful. It's powerful. It's yeah. really yeah. <laughs> Other parts are, uh, you know, heavy. Well, thank you so much for having us on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Soldier Songs is available until May on Opera Philadelphia's channel. It's operaphila.tv forward slash soldier dash songs. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Here on the OBS, we have survived, sorry, celebrated the inauguration of President Biden with a fair amount of pomp to the circumstance. And well, we got to dreaming <laughs> about our own inaugurations and, and what music we would like to have played for them. First of all, I would never be inaugurated president. I don't know if I could be inaugurated the head of anything. Uh, but if I was... <laughs> Too many watch lists. Thank you. Uh, I would definitely want fanfares as a brass player first and foremost i would like some copeland uh, fanfare for the common man i'd like some britain fanfare for saint edmundsbury or frankly 
I could just have the same fanfares that American composer Peter Boyer wrote for the actual inauguration itself. I mean, hey, is if it, it is it broke, don't fix it. Is it fair to say you're a fan of fanfares? I am most definitely a fan of fanfares. A fanfare fan? I am a fanfare <laughs> fan. Yes, exactly right. Peter Boyer had a, a inaugural fanfare played by the president's own United States Marine Band, conducted by Colonel Jason K. Fettig. Weston, what would your inauguration look like musically? Well, first and foremost, I would use my extreme power as president of the United States to just uh, ditch the national anthem entirely. And yes, this is the hill I'm going to die on. Um, but <laughs> because it's the only song that's guaranteed to be played at an inauguration. And the only problem is, is that it's not very good. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> no shade to Francis Scott Key. I think he's, uh, I think the lyrics are very appropriate for a pretty decent anthem. Um, uh, but the pro for the most part, or the first verse is anyway. We can shade Francis Scott Key though. There's no. We, we can that. shade yeah. him a little bit. Um, but I down think into, for me, as we get down into verses four and five, they get yeah. Verses so. four and five get pretty pretty rough. But verse one is, is okay. Sure, whatever. But the real problem in my mind is the music. Um, because I mean, think about this. Every time you see the national anthem. Uh, outside of inauguration, it's basically uh, a, a sports event, right? You know, you're you're at a baseball game, a football game. Uh, the stadium is awkwardly standing quietly while a single singer kind of blasts it out with excessive ornamentation because the music itself isn't that interesting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but part of the reason we do that is because the range of the piece is too wide. Uh, you have like the the rocket's red glare. It's really high up there. If you're not a professional, it's pretty difficult to hit those notes, especially if you're going to do that extra like extra leap at the end that so many people do. A fourth. And, exactly. That, that fourth there for the 4th of July. Oh, that's probably why they did that. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's not really a feasible thing to be sung as a choir and sound good unless you're all professionals. That means that we put it to, you know, the elite singers, which feels mm, bad side of America to me, you know, like, uh, you know, the elites get to sing it while the common people just have to watch, you know, that that, that rubs me the wrong way. I think that uh, you really need to have uh, for a national anthem something that's singable, something where the words and music mesh, mesh and something that everyone can sing along to and at least sound okay. Like a good example would be like La Marseillaise or the East German national anthem is a particular favorite of mine. Even the Russian national anthem, which where the music Current was written geopolitical first. geopolitical player, East Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really good national anthem. It's written by Hans Eisler, who I stand. Uh, anyway, this is a, that's a whole different story. Back well, to America. Add the Czechoslovakian bop if we're going all the way Oh, that's back. a good one. That's a good one, too. Uh, but I think the real the, the reason that we have this problem with the anthem is because of the complete disconnect between the lyrics and the music. So if you go back in time a little bit, the music for the anth anthem comes from the uh, a song called the Anacreontic Song, which I always say wrong. Anacreontic Song. Uh, which Anacreon the, in Heaven. Yes, that's the name of the song. 
Um, the it was the anthem of a London based club of amateur musicians. Emphasis on the amateur. Uh, it's an English tune, first of all, which you know seems very un-American to me. How droll! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was originally sung at the sort of the beginning of dinner to kind of set the mood, um, but it kind of spread out and was kind of a popular drinking song for a while. I think because of the what I think of as the karaoke effect. You know, you're sitting there at a karaoke bar, your drunk friend goes up to sing, and there's nothing funnier than watching a drunk person try to hit a high note, and it's got the unnecessary high notes. It's perfect. Um, but the main problem is the words. Uh, the song is essentially a parody, a pastiche, a satirical pastiche of uh, poems by the Greek, ancient Greek poem Anacreon, who was known for drinking songs and love poetry, wink, wink, you know the kind of love I mean. Um, and the lyrics are a little risque. They're very fake pompous. And they uh, and th and that sort of that sort of level of reading would have been very obvious to the audience. Um, the the sort of refrain uh, is like the myrtle of Venus with Bacchus's uh, vine, you know, Venus being the god of love and Bacchus being the god of uh, wine and drinking. And myrtle and it, is the tree of marriage. Exactly. Yeah. It's very sexual Im uh, imagery. Let's just hear like a little bit of the original version. This is sung by Jacob Wright, conducted by Jerry Blackstone. This is for what was for a recorded history of our national anthem. So yeah, this song has extreme wealthy frat boy energy to me. You know what I mean? It's just a bunch of dudes sitting around Powdered singing about their their classical illusions that no one else gets. Um, and and even though uh, Francis Scott Key's words fit rhythmically, it really takes a good arranger and a really good singer to really give it any kind of pathos. And, you know, it didn't have to be this way because the Star Spangled Banner wasn't even officially adopted as the national anthem until 1931, which is still in living memory. You know, uh, before this, songs like America the Beautiful, Columbia, Gem of the Ocean were unofficial anthems, both of Remember which Remember that, better. Oliver? Oh. Uh. <laughs> so look, Weston, everyone's a critic, man. So we know that you don't want the national anthem at your inaugural ceremonies, but what do you want? I think a new national anthem would be in order. Either I would commission one uh, written with these uh, with the ideas in mind of singability, something that resonates with people, something that really reflects our real history would be very exciting. And actually, literally, as I was writing this, I discovered that uh, maybe about a week ago, U.S. Representative James Clyburn actually introduced a bill 
that would make lift every voice and sing the national anthem, which is an infinitely better written piece musically, in my opinion, and explores the struggles of the historically downtrodden African-Americans in the United States. Now, I don't feel qualified as a white person to definitively say whether this should be the anthem for everyone in the U.S., but from a musical perspective, it's singable, catchy, cathartic, genuine national history being explored, celebrated, and even critiqued by it. And for me, that's a perfect alternative to what we have right now. Weston Williams, when he gets inaugurated, we know what to do. Oliver <laughs> Camacho, there Just, you are. You're being inaugurated. What are we hearing? Okay, thanks for the setup. Just a little bit of counterpoint uh, for Weston. Oh. Um, I think that there's something actually quite poetic about our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, and how difficult it is and how that it can be a metaphor for how difficult it was to create this country and how it still struggles to be, you know, a bastion of democracy. And that counter takes... counterpoint, though, I think it should still sound good. <laughs> I think it can sound great if it's done, if it's done well. That's really difficult. Uh, anyway, the counterpoint yeah. is uh, as someone who has made a cottage industry out of being a national anthem singer, you're both right. It's difficult to sing, but you can do it oh. well, provided you start in the right key. Exactly. Uh, Ooh, true. That's our advice, everybody. Start low, everybody. Start lower than <laughs> yes. you think. Yeah. Start low. Start lower than Same you with think. Happy it's birthday, too. Start always low. <laughs> start lower than you think. Yeah. And the only thing I'll add about the anthem is if you have never seen Maya Rudolph's character, the national anthem singer <laughs> oh from Saturday God. Night Live, go walk. To, run, don't walk. Go look at it right now on YouTube. It's incredible. It's so just when incredible. we were when we were t having our pre-production chats about this episode, folks, I thought we were going to be all be playing. What would who would we want to sing at our inauguration and what? And I think me and Matt are the only person that took this assignment. Maybe Ashley. I, 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 I did so. kind of blow that out of the water yeah. a little bit. <laughs> so the first thing that came to mind, of course, with the current political situation was non piumesta from Rossini's Cenerentola. Uh, just the idea of an opera finale and there being lots of hardship and then it ending joyfully. Plus but, that uh, plus that aria is borrowed from the Barber of Seville, just like <laughs> This Land is Your Land borrowed Let's Get Loud from Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> so I like the idea of the Rossini finale, but I thought a little bit better of it. And I'm going to recommend the finale to Rossini's 1822 Neapolitan opera Zelmira. Uh, the opera tells of the princess of Lesbos and her efforts to restore her father to the throne. And the conclusion of the opera, like many of these uh, opera seria of Rossini, is the aria finale, the aria rondo finale. Uh, so we're going to listen to who I would want to sing this at my inauguration. The aria is called Riedi al Solio. And the text begins with de declamation, Riedi al solio irata stellas in accuse a te in sentiero, which translates, Return to your throne, a wrathful star blocked your way to it. Here is Cecilia Bartoli from her studio recording with the uh, orchestra and chorus of La Fenice conducted by Ian Marin. Then after the declamatory part, we get this beautiful cantabile 
No più affani in me non sento, a felice a pieni o sono. I no longer feel distress, I feel a perfect happiness. And then, of course, it's Rossini, so you got to have a cabaletta. And the cabaletta uh, has the catchiest little tune. And the text begins, gather round, my beloved ones. And then eventually the chorus says, after the raging of the cruel storm, let joy and celebration fill our hearts. And then the cabaletta, like many of Rossini's cabalettas, has a stretta where the singer gets to do all sorts of showing off. And if we were lucky and Cecilia Barti was feeling very warmed up, we might get <laughs> this version of the stretta, which ends with an E flat. <laughs> from a live concert she did in 1998 uh, with pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet from her famous Live in Italy CD. A barn-burning inauguration for Oliver Camacho. Ashley, so you've been inaugurated president. Congratulations. 
Thank you, thank you. Uh, also, good luck to all of you, because if I'm president, <laughs> the country has lost their damn mind. Uh, so why don't we, for my programming playlist, assume that we're in a dystopian ceremony where time is a flat circle. We can have folks living or past as part of my big day. I also think of this kind of like the way I would think of a wedding. It's like you have a super fast ceremony and then like a big, big party. So that's kind of where where my goal is. This is going to, so again, get rid of all concepts of time. Anybody living or dead can be a part of this. Uh, hopefully you'll you'll see a little bit of a pattern here. And also any of you that know me, this will, this will make plenty of sense. Um, first thing we're going to want to do is honor uh, the previous office holder as this person, hopefully she is on her way out of, uh, of her office for the last four years. So I'd like to open it with Goodbye Stranger by Supertramp. And I want that to be a duet between Stephanie Blythe and Dmitry Vorostovsky. Yes. <laughs> Stephanie will probably bring... If time travel is invented, it will be for this purpose. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Um, and as Weston so eloquently pointed out, the national anthem is a little bit problematic, especially from a lyric standpoint, as you get a little further down. So we're going to pull the anthem off the table for now until we can install my version of the national anthem, which I firmly should, should believe should be Beyonce's love on top. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. We're going to move on, and instead we're going to honor our country by using God Bless America, and we're going to use the Marian Anderson version, mm. because it is perfect, and nothing about it should change, and again, because time is a flat circle, she can be there. So she's going to sing God Bless America next on the list. Uh, then we're going to move on to Ooh Child by the Five Stair Steps, uh, which is the Ooh Child, things mm. are going to get easier, only I want it sung by Jesse Norman. Yes. Good. Yeah, much yeah. taller vowels with lots more space. Ooh, her jaw's just gonna. When we, when we get to some days, she, her jaw's just gonna unhinge. She'll like swallow a bald eagle. It'll be amazing. And after we do Ooh Child, <laughs> were you gonna say something, Matt? I certainly well, want I, your jokes I, in I here. want her to wear an American flag like she does in that. <laughs> In that Bastille Day video where she's just draped in the tricolor. <laughs> There's going to be a cape. You know it. Okay, so we've had, we have a Goodbye Stranger by Supertramp, God Bless America, Marian Anderson, Utel, Jesse Norman. Then we're going to move on to Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. Mm. You know, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, but it's going to be a trio. And it's going to be between Larry Brownlee, my yeah. actual favorite vocalist, PJ Morton, who's also going to mm -hmm. be on the keys, and UC Bjorling. Ha <laughs> ha! I want everybody to come together. This whole thing is about unity. And then we're going to move on to a song uh, from the 1940s called This Is My Country. There's a recording out of Fred Waring in the Pennsylvanians. This is my country, land that I love. It's a little more honest and genuine when it comes to patriotism. Sure. I want this sung by Cherokee mezzo-soprano Barbara McAllister, and I want the text translated into Cherokee. Ooh. Ooh, because we haven't good. forgotten. We haven't forgotten whose country this is. Uh, then we'll actually move into, um, for the poet laureate section for the, for the spoken word. Uh, I want to turn to a gentleman named Rudy Francisco, who is my absolute favorite, favorite writer. Uh, if you don't know who he is, I encourage you to check him out. Uh, if he doesn't have time to actually write anything for me, cause I know he's busy and famous. Uh, <laughs> there's a, there's a beautiful poem called to the body. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of little blips from it. Cause it's so lovely. Uh, dear eyes, there are things I don't tell you. We both know you're terrible at keeping secrets. Dear brain, you're a good listener, but you give horrible relationship advice. Uh, 
uh, dear heart, I trust you. Don't F this up. Uh, dear legs, walking is easy. Now pick a destination. Uh, let's see. Dear voice, it is your job to make sure that my fists never have to solve my problems. Dear voice, the people are listening. I'm going to close my eyes and let you take over. Say something worth remembering. So I want Rudy to either read that or something beautiful that he has written for me. Then we get to the actual swearing in, kind of the reason we're all here, but it's going to go super fast. And I'm going to be putting my hand on a copy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's My Own Words for the swearing in. <laughs> and then we're going to go right into America the Beautiful. Only I want it arranged for four-part Andrew Sisters style vocalists. And I want it with Kiri Takanawa, Beverly Sills, Grace Bumbry, and Denise Graves. Perfect. How amazing would that be? <laughs> then we move into Dolly Parton's Light of a Clear Blue Morning. And it's going to be Dolly Parton. Okay. Because it's Dolly sense. Parton. It's it's Dolly Parton. I don't need to tell you anything else. Uh, then we're going to keep going with that message of hope. We're going to go to uh, Lovely Day by Bill Withers. Bill Withers is going to sing, but he's going to do it with Nicholas Vaughn. Because I think Nicholas Vaughn's voice would be a nice little light hug over the top of Bill Withers. A little Withers, Excuse me. Yeah. A little, little counterpoint, a little counterpoint. Uh, and then we're going to do our sort of 11 o'clock barn burner. We're going to do Freedom 90 by George Michael. Uh, and the leads are going to be Patricia Rousset and Jamie Barton. Uh, Ashley, you clearly need to be inaugurated because you have it all perfectly planned. <laughs> this is, this, is, be this like? is not just the inauguration <laughs> plan. This is her platform. <laughs> this is, I mean, how amazing would this be? And then finally, at the very end, Everybody that's been on stage so far as a yes, performer, yes. we're all going to come back together, myself included, and we're all going to perform Brand New yes. Day from The Wiz. <laughs> Can you feel a brand new day? Ow! How amazing. How amazing <laughs> would this like, beautiful fictional meeting be? It it's all be about hope. Amazing. It's all about crossing cultures. It's all about getting people from different styles together. Because let's be honest, if you can sing opera, you can pretty much sing just about anything. So I would love to hear these recordings. Matt Cummings, based on Ashley's rundown, I have a feeling your inaugural crowd may be somewhat smaller. <laughs> my, co- my COVID-approved inaugural Thank crowd. you. There yeah, there we, we go. go. I mean, just to bring it back to the times that we are all living in. That, that broadcast was what I found to be so powerful about it was just like this idea, this rekindling in my, of an idea of everyone coming together to achieve something bigger than any one person. Uh, and so instead of an aria like Oliver picked or uh, a concert series like Ashley, um, I want like one ensemble that can give you all of that in just three minutes because it has Ooh. everything. And that ensemble that I'm picking <laughs> is the finale of Verdi's Falstaff. Tutanamondo yeah, Borda. That's true. Um, yes. Which, I mean, let's stipulate. Not everything in the world is a joke right now. <laughs> but it does feel good to be able to laugh again and like mm. think about some other things. Uh, and to end your inauguration with He Who Laughs Last, Last Bess. Just, you know, a reminder of Anthony Fauci. The humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Fauci press conferences taken into consideration um and what makes this even more like topical for me is that giuseppe verdi if you really think about it kind of is the joe biden of opera (laughs) you know he by the time he was listening so like by the time he was writing falstaff he was the master of the style that was kind of seen as being outdated this bel canto opera by the numbers style that really people had moved on towards more through composed music at that point mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he was persuaded to come back out of retirement for these one last greatest success we hope um he, giuseppe verdi a man of the people 
didn't come from an elite conservatory, started young and worked his way up to being the elder statesman. statesman. Giuseppe Verdi, closely tied to Italian unification. Oh. And the, the scene is the embodiment of one of the two factions between this Italian vocal bel canto opera singing i mean he's after bel canto but just the high romantic italian opera singing versus wagnerian opera he was he has known a lot of tragedy giuseppe verdi mostly a tragic composer but at the end of the day we come back to comedy um and what really drives this home for me is that this is a, a rare moment of italian opera that has the kind of like contrapuntal formal compositional style that was really common in german music uh it's a fugue and you don't really get a lot of fugues in Italian opera. So he is serving <laughs> as the bridge between warring factions. Finally, it slaps. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. 
Didn't get as much play as Gaga or JLo, but Renee Fleming also participated in Inauguration Day events, singing Schubert's Ave Maria and America the Beautiful at a private mass attended by President Biden and VP Harris. Quote, singing for something of this magnitude comes with unique challenges. Imagine looking out while singing and seeing rows of faces from your daily newsfeed, said Fleming. The Boris Martinovich voice competition is in hot water after listing supposed contestants who did not actually apply. Posting singer bios and videos with the competition's logo added, all without consent. According to MiddleClassArtist.com, the online competition appeared to be falsely populating the website to solicit more $90 non-refundable application fees from eager and non-suspecting singers. Since Middle Class Artist's story was published this morning, the singer's information has been removed from the website, seemingly within hours of Finkelstein's inquiry to the competition. A representative from the competition responded to Middle Class Artist denying responsibility. Both conductor Yannick Nizé-Sagan and AGMA President Ray Menard have written open letters to President Biden calling for relief in the performing arts industry and to suggest that a Secretary of Arts and Culture be added to the U.S. Cabinet. In order to progress, to elevate the arts, we need a voice at the table that will be heard, said Nizes again. We nominate Oliver Camacho for the position who has graciously agreed to accept as long as he can sit next to Pete Buttigieg. This week's draft picks, LA Opera has announced that friend of the show Russell Thomas will be named the company's next artist in residence. Thomas will have influence in artistic planning and casting and will head two new training programs, one for singers from historically black colleges and universities and one for LA public high school students in underserved communities. Singers can do more than just sing, Thomas told the LA Times. The Metropolitan Opera has announced that Marsha Lynn Sells will be the company's first ever chief diversity officer. Sells comes to the Met from Harvard Law School, where she has served as the Associate Dean and Dean of Students since 2015. She will be tasked with implementing a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan to be at the core of the company's hiring, artistic planning, and audience engagement activities. Better late than never. Friend of the show, Julia Lula-Mara, has been tapped to lead Opera Columbus. The Canadian producer recently served as associate producer of the Boston Lyric Opera and co-artistic director of Guerrilla Opera, which is also in Boston. Long Beach Opera has named its inaugural Minister of Culture, Alexander Gedeon. Mr. Gedeon will be tasked with working as a member of the production team on LBO's 2021 operas, developing projects for future, future seasons with an emphasis on cultural inclusion, researching and creating more opportunities for increased diversity in creative design teams, and producing and performing his original podcast called Towards a New Opera, another podcast. The International Classical Music Awards has announced Spanish conductor Pablo Eras Casado as 2021's Artist of the Year. Other winners include Hermanella Yaho for her album Anima Rara, the complete recording of Ambroise Thomas, Hamlet, starring Stéphane Degout and Sabine Devier, and a Lifetime Achievement Award for Edita Grubarova. Opera Project Columbus has announced the launch of its virtual intensive Vocal Academy. The online courses include A Tour of Opera in Italy, Ask the Maestro, and My 50 Years of Dressing Opera Stars at the Met. My submission, Unpleasant German Operas You've Never Heard Of, was rejected. All right, Yellow Card Red Card is back. This week's Yellow Cards go to... Spain. Bass baritone Florian Besch gave a recital at the Teatro de la Zarzuela on January 25th. Also Spain. 
Auditorio de Tenerife presented Poulenc's La Voix Humaine over the weekend with soprano Carmen Acosta with mandatory social distancing and face masks at all times. Florida. As of this recording, tickets are still on sale for Opera Orlando's Hansel and Gretel for this weekend. This week's Red Cards. Spain. The Palau de Lezar Reina Sofia has announced the cancellation of its whole run of Verdi's fall staff due to COVID-19 cases in the production team. Also Spain, Liceu has canceled its Tannhäuser due to social distancing limitations and expanded the socially distanced seating of the orchestra for George Benjamin's Lessons in Love and Violence into, well, the orchestra seats. Germany. The Deutsche Oper am Rhein is closed through March, while the Komische Oper Berlin and Staatstheater Cottbus are shut down until at least Easter. Switzerland! Theater Basel will postpone two productions to future seasons, shutting down until at least March. And Sweden! The Royal Swedish Opera has extended closure until at least March 26th. And on this day, January 25th, in 1683, it was the first performance of Alessandro Scarlatti's opera Il Pompeo in Rome. In 1694, it was the premiere of Giovanni Bononcini's Cerse, also in Rome. Vivaldi's Impermestra premiered in 1727 in Florence. In 1776, Tommaso Traetta's La Merope premiered in Milan. It's Cinderella Day. Rossini's La Cenerentola, or The Triumph of Goodness, premiered in Rome in 1817. Jumping ahead about a hundred years, it was the world premiere of Umberto Giordano's Madame Saint-Gene in 1915 at the Met. In 1886, one of the most widely regarded symphonic and operatic conductors of the 20th century, Wilhelm Furtwängler, was born in Berlin. Von Verwesten, in 1909, it was the first performance of Richard Strauss's Elektra in Dresden. In 1945, it was Richard Tucker who made his most successful debut as Enzo Grimaldo in La Gioconda at the Met, heralding a 30-year career as the company's leading American tenor of the post-war era. And that's your two-minute drill. Tell us who we were listening to just then. That was the one and only Heldon Mommy, Christine Gerke, singing the Agamemnon monologue from Electra, which is a bop. Okay. First of all, <laughs> rude that you played a clip from Electra and didn't let me outro it, George. Second of all, I love Electra. This is such a good opera. Uh, I, I can see Oliver reaching for the mute button right now. No, but... I love Electra, actually, but um, I just don't need to hear you talk about it for a long time. So. <laughs> Okay, I, I think we can take a hint there. Uh, we had talked about um, uh, the recent draft picks for this week. Ashley, uh, at the Metropolitan Opera, hey, they did something right. They did. They did. I'm actually really excited for Marshall and Sells. Uh, I think that 
this is a great hire for a number of reasons, you know, demographics included, but also the fact that she comes from higher education, the fact that she comes from Harvard and Columbia, she worked for the NBA, she was VP of org development at Reuters. So she's got this really interesting resume and the notion of bringing in somebody from higher education, albeit from a, a different language within higher ed, I think is going to be a really great uh, thing for them. She's going to bring a new set of eyes. She's going to listen, not just to the people that hired her. She's going to listen down because I've heard wonderful things about her over at Harvard Law through my other connections to my other life in law school. So yay, Marsha, <laughs> we love her. And just having that kind of experience at so many different types of organizations is going to, it speaks well to her ability to fit into any sort of org structure and like really hit, put the rubber to the road. Agreed. And one more note. I mean, she's uh, she's got a JD from Columbia, so she's terribly intelligent. Uh, but also, I think having somebody who who comes to the table that has that legal language and that legal foundation in mind, right. she's it's it just adds a layer that that we haven't had before in this type of leadership. So I'm actually really excited for that. I love Russell Thomas and what he had to say about singers do more than just sing. Such a great choice of for LA Opera to put a singer into a position of authority and decision making. And I, I got a good feeling that that is really well, going to it's a weird, trickle down through that organization. It's a weird name for what he's what his uh, yeah pro- profile is going to be. What his uh, dossier? What he might? What am I saying? His uh, what does Jared Kushner have? His uh, his portfolio uh, is going to be yeah. uh, his for the yeah. But um, I think it should be a different name. But at any rate, they are trying to distance themselves from Placido Domingo, who was the last. A good call. Have. A good yeah. call. Well, well, dare I suggest Minister of Culture as a name? That I was like, why, I read that. I'm like, what? What? What is this? A Soviet Union? What? <laughs> why would you name of the Minister of Culture? Oh, we like Long Beach. It's, it's fancy. Uh, so it's 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 it, it was an odd name, but yeah. I'm sure he'll do a lovely job. It doesn't have to be the Soviet Union. It could be like Hogwarts or something, you know? Ooh, so, that's yeah, they true. Have, they have ministers yeah. in, in England, George. Yeah. You should know. They do. They do indeed, yeah. Le- can I tell you a bit about Gilbert and Sullivan? Please. <laughs> no. <laughs> Quick, mute him, no. mute him, mute him. We did that episode already. Uh, uh, Julia uh, taking over at Opera Columbus, uh, friend of the show, of course, fabulous designer, producer as well in Boston. The only downside, sadly, is that you have to be in Columbus. And I say that um, purely because as a huge Michigan Wolverines fan, obviously Mm. to me, Columbus is the axis of evil. Apart from that, it's a fantastic opera company and she's just the person for it to really, I think, to have this company take some steps. Let's get out the Sharpie. Have this company take some steps and to start to widen the repertoire, to get out of its comfort zone, to uh, perhaps work with the School of Music at Ohio State, and to really the Ohio think, State push this Ooh. opera company forward into the next uh, level. Ashley, uh, the letters. What do I need to know? The letters are, well, I want some of my colleagues to weigh in on what the letters are. I have a counterpoint after they speak about these letters. But once again, we have well, more open letters that have come out. Weston, I feel like you've got thoughts on this. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I feel like, um, I, I mean, I think maybe before 2020, everyone said that the art of letter writing was dead, but all of these opera luminaries <laughs> have brought it back. We found it. We got time now. <laughs> <laughs> they are back, and it is it is fancy. 
Um, well, I think that, uh, well, Yannick Nizé Sagan's uh, letter, he posted it on uh, his Facebook page. And it's, uh, and it's a lot of, I think, what we've uh, seen before uh, as far as, like, please, please help arts professionals. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, they did, he does acknowledge the irony in the beginning. Is like, he, might be, he says, it might be a surprise to hear from a Canadian citizen so early on in your ten- tenor. <laughs> but as the music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera, two of the country's greatest cult- cultural institutions, I'm a proud artistic citizen of the United States of America, which I thought was very funny. Um, very eloquent. But I think the, uh, the idea of a, dare I say, minister of culture for the U.S. Uh, could be, uh, I, I think it's an interesting thought because we have not had in the U.S. the same level of cultural recognition that we would see in the governments of a lot of European countries, especially. And that's something that I've always pushed for, because as as we know, the less government support you have, the harder it is just as a the singer more for, or a performer. I mean, the more profits come into come into the question. I mean, the more yes. you, the, the, the companies have to try to make money through exactly. their operations. And, uh, and, but at the same time, you know, you have to have money to make money. Uh, there, I, I, I remember I was in uh, France uh, many years ago now, um, and I was at the uh, Opera Bastille, and they made the offhand remark that even though, <laughs> oh yes, drink, drink. everyone, please, uh, that the uh, the tour guide mentioned, I'm not sure if this is true, and it might not be true anymore, but um, uh, at the time, uh, they were saying that even though the government funded quite a lot of what was going on at the, the Paris Opera, um, they actually got a return on their investment because they were able to do more interesting productions, more productions, employ more people, uh, create a real foundation. Uh, and I think a uh, a person in the government whose responsibility was to advocate for that, to push for that, listen directly to complaints could be an important step in that direction. But actually, but- there's something that worried you about this. Yes, uh, and it's it's in the nomenclature of having it be a cabinet-level position, because what happens when you put somebody on the cabinet of the United States is that you automatically put them in line of succession for the presidency of the United States, <laughs> should-ish go down. So if we make this person a cabinet-level position, they would be 19th in line for the presidency. So oh unless God. we're paying lots of attention to the whole designated survivor scenario, I mean, <laughs> things have been weird. Things have been weird. Let's be honest. we got to keep everybody scattered and keep them apart. But yeah, if this person becomes a cabinet member, they're 19th in line for the U.S. presidency. That does make me a little nervous because I feel like maybe 20 years ago, uh, James Levine might have been appointed and then we'd be in a real scenario now, wouldn't we? Nope. I The story that uh, Zach Finkelstein broke on middleclassartist.com has to be one of the strangest things I've read in probably the last three hours. (laughs) Somebody pipe up and and talk me through just how strange this is. So this this competition. Somebody uh, other than somebody other than. Oh yeah, because I kept talking for a while. No, what what I want to say is that it's actually not that strange. I think there have been these predatory competitions and young artist programs for a long time. What's remarkable about the story is that we're able now, because of social media and because of a platform like Middle Class Artists to call these things out and to, you know, put them on blast right away and have so much evidence to show you're a bunch of crap. 
And congratulations, Zach. Because I'm, I'm actually mad at you, George, because I wrote a joke in at the top of the show. It should be middle class artist SVU. Um, <laughs> but you changed it to middle class artist dot bomb. That's okay. I, I mean, th- so yeah, to, to just full, full, full nutshell it, this competition that is named after a, a famous singer, according to the PR person that was right, you know, responding to emails. Uh, there's a competition, and it's like, here's a section of our website that shows all of these lovely, you know, competitors. What they've done is they've taken without these artists' permission their qualifications, their names. Although in some cases they like mash their names together, not unlike what you see on all of our screens right now. Uh, and then they took YouTube videos edited them and slapped the co- competition's logo on them and then posted them all of this without the including, artist's permission. Including one girl who they just used a picture of pretty Yente for to be her. Because <laughs> Which is pretty bad for a number of reasons. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely maddening. And all of this kind of, you know, again, the magic of social, me- social media, this all kind of fell apart in about 36 to 48 hours. Uh, so middle class artists first started thinking about this stuff yesterday. They posted, uh, they posted the story on the 24th. They reached out to the competition and said, hey, we've gotten wind that these aren't people that are actually competitors. They know you're not using this stuff without their permission. Then the competition doubles down and says, well, someone must be applying with fake names and fake. Uh, so basically they absolved themselves of responsibility and said, well, we clearly didn't do this. When it's like, but why would there be We're logos? all trying to find the guy who did this. <laughs> yes. we're, exactly. We're all trying. And as... <laughs> and as of this taping, uh, I per social media, about 10 minutes ago, the ninth singer was discovered who this competition had used their uh, had used their stuff without, without permission. permission. Yeah. And also, if you go to their sponsorship page, they have like the wife of this. What's his name? Uh, guy. She has like a life coaching business. And then there's also some. Korean. They're claiming Denise Graves as a judge for yes. the competition. And she was like, I might have agreed to do it. I haven't heard anything about it. Yeah. And then there's also like a Korean orphanage. Like, you know, you can support That's your not money. real. Yeah. It, it's it not has, real. It has like, it has a Nigerian prince scam levels of, of, of shadiness about but it. But here's like, the thing is that there, there might actually be a competition and somebody maybe. who competes, who paid $90 to audition might actually end up winning but all it means is that this guy, whatever his name is, I don't want to say his name to amplify it. Boris but Bo- something. Boris uh, Martinovich is trying to bad. raise money. Boris bad enough. Is trying to raise money to put on a concert at Carnegie Hall. And he's going to drag along whatever the three winners of this competition uh, to perform on stage with him, you know, to sing an aria. And that's their privilege as the winner of the competition. But really, it was just a way for this guy to uh, big up his own career. Mm. I mean, like, stealing signs in baseball kind of pales into insignificance on that. Well, we certainly won't be linking the competition on our <laughs> website, but we will be linking the Feel middle... Feel free to send us $90. <laughs> Non-refundable. We will go ahead and link the middle class artist article to our website, operaboxscore.com, as well. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good calls and bad calls abound. Uh, I have two, so I guess I'll go first and last. First of all, to our listener of Mailbag, you can always write to us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Nyusha from New York City wrote in. She says, quote, I didn't like opera before OBS. Now I love it. I didn't like sports before OBS, and now I hate them a little less. <laughs> we'll take I think that's where Oliver is, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you, if you write into us, we have some amazing merch. We have some beer mats, just like this. Opera Box Score, America's Talk Radio. Are you show saying you'll send them opera. one? I will send you a beer mat. Okay. 
I will send you a beer mat. It's hard to do it by email, so. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta send a photo and attach when you have to cut it hey, out Yes, later. but you can print out your own beer mat. Oliver, you got a good color bed call. Oh, there's a really nice story in the New York Times about a virtuoso American puppeteer named Basil Twist. Uh, he's making his directing debut at the Opera Comique in a 18th century French opera called uh, Titon et l'Aurore by Jean-Joseph Mondeville, which is a co-production of Les Arts Florissant. And you can mm. see the article at the New York Times and you can see the opera streaming for free on Medici TV. Matt Cummings. Uh, Wiener Staatsoper has picked up their streams again and on the Thursday the 28th, they are going to be showing uh, the abduction from the Seraglio that they did last October with uh, Bay Among Bays, Lisette Oropesa, and friend of the show, regular <laughs> Mühlmann, uh, and Wir Stannen. That's... <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that uh, Stannen is not a separable prefix verb. Weston Williams, the silent giant, as always. Ashley I got Hardgrave. nothing. Uh, I have one, but I want to go back because you said you had two. What's your second good call, George? He wants to save it for the end. I wanted to save it for the end. Okay, okay, then I'll do mine and then we'll do yours. Uh, So uh, mine is actually kind of an on this day. Uh, On this day, 25 years ago in 1996, Rent gave its first premiere off-Broadway. So happy birthday, Rent. You gave teenage Ashley Great Joy in rotation with her Alanis Morissette album. But more importantly, you helped her understand La Boheme for the first time. And also, we miss you and your promise, Jonathan Larson. Very true, very apt words there. Lastly, uh, at Hawaii Opera Theater coming up Friday, January 29, uh, featuring Quinn Kelsey and mm. ukulele player Tamane is a Kani Kapila, which is basically like a sort of impromptu jazz session. There's going to be opera. <clears throat> there's going to be ukulele playing. There's going to be Hawaiian culture. I... I play ukulele myself. I love this idea, and I cannot wait to see it. That's at hawaiiopera.org. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email at us at operaboxscore@gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is, it's fine. Just tell everyone. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guests, David T. Little and Jonathan McCullough, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you sing Happy Birthday to Mozart on Wednesday, January 27. We're back with an all-new show, February 3, the Dallas Opera Network. Podcast on February 4th, more opera headlines, more hot takes, more executive orders from Oliver. Join us. <laughs>